Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. Meantime, of the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline, and uh, the promo of the morning show alluded to Chris Ballard meeting with the media, uh, which is something he did do today at noon. And while mentioning on the PUP, Taekwon Lewis and Will Mallory going, there was uh, no mention of one Jonathan Taylor being there, as we found out at 5 o'clock from the uh, Colts and a tweets. Jonathan Taylor is there. And to talk about that from ESPN.com, Stephen Holder is with us. So what do you think gives here? Uh, well, surprise. Uh, I think that <laughs> – look, I – See, that's not that, – do you think that happened after Ballard talked today or did it, was he aware of that when he talked to you? Well, if you want to give him the benefit of the doubt, here's, here's what you can base it on. Uh, they were I, – I believe Jonathan Taylor was not was, – was one of the, the players who reported um, – you know, later Late, in yeah. the, the reporting process. So I think they were still working through all of their different, um, you know, check-in procedures. And and the medical part of it is part of that process. So it is plausible, okay? It is plausible that he had not been through the medical uh, checkpoint, you know, when Chris Ballard spoke today. That is definitely possible, or at least he had not gotten word. He did say that he had not spoken with him yet. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think, like I said, if you want to give Chris Ballard the benefit of the doubt, there's there's reason to do that. But I but I also think it's very hard to ignore the elephant in the room here. Yeah, it it seems like from from always saying that they are well aware of everything before it happens, it would be tough to understand that they would not be aware of this. To me, yeah, and, and especially because players who are you know, sort of legitimately hurt, they, they oftentimes come back a little early too sometimes. You know, not not all the time, but but often they will come back early and, and get checked out and and they tend to know where they're at before they, you know, kind of get cranked up. So I mean Jim Ursay said on McAfee's show a week before last he was healed. Yeah. He did say that. He yeah. did. And and I remember talking to 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 Jonathan Taylor at the end of the, the mandatory mini camp and and he certainly suggested that uh, the plan was for him to be up and running. Now, what I'll say is I was told since this news came out, the only feedback I've gotten was from a source that says that this won't be long and that he'll be up and running soon. They were just working through, you know, the, the final stage of his recovery. But, you know, look, <laughs> uh, show me, don't tell me. We'll see. You know, I, I think time will tell. Time will tell. So Stephen Holder of ESPN.com is on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Could this be, first of all, what would be gained out of doing something like this? Like it's been tossed around. Maybe this is one of those sit-ins um, type of deal, hold-ins, I should say, not sit-ins, but hold-ins that have been uh, referenced a couple of different times. Or maybe he's, you know, found a spot where he can have some leverage. What would be the idea of doing that right now with a, a year remaining? Uh, I mean, you're, you're basically making your point is what you're doing. It's all—it's the only card you can play. It's the only card uh, a player under contract can play when he's looking for a new deal is to withhold services. And, and withhold is the wrong word. Let me be clear. I'm not saying—I'm not saying that there's acrimony and he's at odds and, and is, you know, sitting out. I don't know that. But I'm just saying, just generally speaking, the only thing a player can do is withhold his services, or at least say, hey, you know, I'm not quite there yet. And, and I'll say this. You know, he may not explicitly say, he being any player, they may not explicitly say, um, I'm not going to play because I want a new deal <laughs> or practice because I want a new deal. But there there also, I think, is a little bit of precedent here with, with Jonathan Taylor along these lines. It's not the exact same thing, but here's what I'm talking about. Last year, you might recall, there were a couple of instances with Jonathan Taylor when he was dealing with the ankle injury where we were led to believe he was going to play on a, on a given Sunday. And then what happened at the 24 hour mark before the game, we would get a release 
saying the following players have been ruled out of this game. And Jonathan Taylor on a couple of occasions had that happen where it was a complete 180 from what we thought was happening going into the weekend on Friday. And so I always interpreted that and and my information kind of backed this up. I always interpreted that as Jonathan Taylor making a unilateral decision. My ankle is not good and I'm not playing (laughs) as opposed to, you know, him really wanting to be out there and, and the team maybe having to say, okay, is it smart for him to play or not play? That is not what happened. This was a Jonathan Taylor decision in those instances that I know where he said, I, I'm not there yet and I'm not going to play. That That's not very Jonathan Taylor-like, you know? So it was interesting. And I noted it at the time. I thought it was very noteworthy at the time that he, he was taking a very different approach than he has historically taken. A guy who's never missed practice, never missed games, and now was saying, yeah, you know what? I, I don't feel right. I'm not going to play. So, What's odd about this to me, Stephen, is the fact that it sounded like today that Chris recognized, much like stuff that that I've talked about, you've talked about, the the difference and the importance that the, the future of Jonathan Taylor holds here compared to what the rest of the NFL running back landscape might look like right now. It seemed like that Chris understood that and was resigned to that fact. Thus to me, to make some type of stand that made it more surprising. If that's the case, that would make it more surprising considering how Chris sounded about Jonathan Taylor earlier today. Well, I do think it's, it's undeniable for the Colts that, you know, while I understand the arguments on all sides of this thing, I really, really do. I understand where the teams are coming from. I certainly understand where the running backs are coming from. I I get it. Uh, But I I do agree with you that the the Colts are not exactly flush in offensive talent. Okay. Offensive skill talent. And then you have this, this young quarterback who has the world on his shoulders Okay, this guy has to work out. Now, he, he handles it fine, and, and he's dealing with that pressure, I think, quite well. But at the same time, you've got to help him, and they know that. And the, the best attribute he's got going for him is Jonathan Taylor <laughs> because I can't say that about his offensive line until they play better. But the best thing he's got going for him is his, is his running back, who is yeah. at least somewhat at odds with the team over his contract. So you know, it ain't a great situation. I, I think when you – Look at so take for example, I mean the Giants. I mean they've got they've got a big money quarterback under contract. Uh, they have a few other pieces on offense. I, I don't love maybe their pieces on offense, but but I guess they could they could say, look, you know we've we've gone a couple years with with Saquon banged up and without him doing much, and and we survived it. Um, you know the Colts when they have had success or anything approaching success in the last couple of years, I mean, Jonathan Taylor was a huge part of that. I just think it's a little different. I, I do agree with that. And it doesn't mean that you go out there and you give him $20 million a year or something. All I'm saying is he plays a pretty big role, I think, in their offensive success, probably more so than other running backs. Yeah, I, I asked this question earlier. I mean, name me uh, an offensive player, uh, skill production-wise, you believe in more than you believe in Taylor with this group. No, go back to – look, all, all you have to do is go back to 2021 when they determined late in that season that, okay, we don't trust our quarterback, Carson Wentz. We do not trust our quarterback, and we're not going to throw the football. <laughs> that was the game plan. We are not going to throw the football. And we're just going to ride this running back, which sounds crazy in, 2000, in 2020s football, but that's what they did. That's literally what they did. It's uh, Stephen Holder. Hey, man, I appreciate you jumping on here quickly. Um, we may hopefully get more of a resolution to this, and we'll get you back yeah. on. But it just struck me at 5 o'clock when I saw that. I thought, hey, that doesn't sound anything like what I heard earlier today. So I agree. I, I thank you, man, for hopping on here on quick notice. More than you know. Thank you. All right. You got it. With us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline, he and Kevin Bowen of the morning show staked out at Grand Park a little bit earlier today, and I'm sure had a good time doing that. They'll be back at it up there again coming up tomorrow. Jake Query joins us. Would you put Caddyshack at the top of your list of films where you never get tired of watching it? You're never, ever, ever going to believe me when I tell you this, and it might be our last conversation. I've never seen Caddyshack. 
I have, um, that is, I don't know if that is, that's a flooring piece of information right there. Here is the thing. How are you, how old are you again? You're 50, 50? I'll be 51 in September. Here's the thing. So you're a 50-year-old dude that's never seen, how can that be? Now, allow me to elaborate. Okay. I think Animal House is in this same category. And those are the two that jump out at me. I have never sat down to watch it from beginning to end. I believe I have probably seen all of the key scenes of it a hundred times. And I'm certainly aware of all of it. And I, you know, I mean, you don't grow up in our era without hearing it referenced 50,000 times. So I know of all the key lines. I know of all the key figures. I know of all the key characters. And I think I probably have seen all of the key scenes. I just have not sat down and sequentially watched them. All right. So do you have a favorite scene of all? See, I've said this about, I've said this about Back to the Future, same way. I've said this about The Godfather. I've said this about, I've never seen Princess Bride. I've said this about Gremlins with Phoebe Cates in it. I've never seen it start to finish, but I've seen bits and pieces. But this is yeah. this is completely different. I would add Animal House in there, too. It's almost, almost like that to be a dude, you have had to have seen both of those at some I, point know, in, in their entirety. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously with Caddyshack, I mean, I've seen a hundred thousand times and I've quoted myself probably a hundred thousand times the, you know, I just said to the daughter, you know, there's something for the effort, you know, there's something for the effort. I mean, you know, so you know, on your deathbed, you will gain complete. I, I mean, obviously I've seen, I know all those things. Right. So, so that would be my favorite like scene from it. Um, I think that's about it. I mean, outside of that, I've seen most of, To be honest with you, when I was a kid, there are two things that come into play here. I was the youngest of three, but I had sisters and not older brothers. That probably was part of it. But also, my parents were such that, like, I mean, there were no R, like, there were no way I was going to an R-rated movie. Uh, I I didn't, I didn't grow up in like some uber strict household. But my dad was like, "You're not seeing R-rated," and I mean, obviously, (laughs) this way to skirt around it. And I mean, Chris and John love. I'll tell you this, Chris and John Love of Love Heating Love Heating and Air, who I know you know and, and did, love. Did also. they supply nudie movies for you? Because no, you couldn't supply, see them at your house? It wasn't that, but they but we spent the night at their house every night in seventh and eighth grade. I basically grew up in Chris and John's house. And we had Revenge of the Nerds on tape and there was one scene in that that was paused so frequently that the tape actually wrinkled after a certain amount of time. But we watched when I was in seventh and eighth grade my buddies and I watched Revenge of the Nerds every Friday and Saturday night for like two straight years, and it was the best movie ever. I mean, I, was it Betty? Did you pause on Betty? Was gone with the wind. Did What's you pause that? on Betty? <laughs> um, I believe that I'll simply say this: we, Betty Childs was certainly in the mix, <laughs> but I believe I believe the scene where we paused was uh, right after a request by Booger. <laughs> I yeah, I know, that. Agent, yeah. How did uh, how did Lewis not go to jail for like thirty years? That was a that was a hell of a chancy move by Lewis right there at the end. You know that uh, you know that Lamar Luttrell, who is in one of the nerds, right? Yeah, right. Uh, he is actually the Photoshop expert in Seinfeld when George has to Photoshop himself out of. That would be Larry uh, B. Scott, and it's weird that I know go. that, but I do know there that because go. he had the same That's name the as, the, I think, the former Pac-12 commissioner. How about, how about right? this, John? I've probably told you this before. Yeah. Probably on this program 50 times. Uh, Revenge of the Nerds was filmed at the University of Arizona at that time. Ed Sorensen was the sports director at K-Gun in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> and his, his wife, Monique, nice. is one of the Roro girls in the movie. Love it. Yeah. I love that. That's he a great story right there. Yes. Yeah. That, is a, they, that is a great story. So, yeah, Larry, Larry B. Scott was Lamar. Larry B. Scott was also one of the Cobra Kai. Uh, he was one of the uh, first to get their ass whipped in the All-Valley Under-18 Karate Championships. So Larry yeah, B. Scott. Javelin for like 700 yards. So, yeah. you know, hey. 
That's good though. But the, the Caddyshack thing does does surprise me a great deal, right there. It does. I'm sorry to let you down. That's all right. Jake Query is with us. Any surprises? I'm assuming uh, none whatsoever from Report Day with you and Kevin being up at camp today. No, you know the one thing that I'm not going to say. It, it, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, so I don't want it to come off that way. But something that did jump out at me. I remember this time a year ago, Kenny Moore showing up. And he was kind of in like a little bit of a contract issue. And he had just had, you know, a a great season where as part of hard knocks, he was, you know, he got named to the pro bowl or whatever. And the team went crazy. And, you know, Kenny Moore became like the people's champion football player and everybody loved him. And then he showed up at camp and there was question is, you know, was he going to hold out or not hold out? And he was like hanging out with Indy 11, wearing a fuel Jersey and it was he was a feel good guy because he was like every one of us, right? And then he had a bad year, obviously. He had a terrible year. He showed up today and I just thought he had you know, he had on like a pair of kind of like they were they were made to look like Louis Vuitton soccer shorts, but they were actually some San Francisco soccer group and a pair of sunglasses and I'm not gonna say too cool for school. That that's the wrong way of saying it, because he was very cordial and friendly and accommodating with his interviews, but um, but he openly talked about how last year there were just a lot of distractions going on and, and there was just a lot going on. And, you know, I don't know if he was talking about from a coaching standpoint and he wasn't down with the coaching change or whatever it might be, but he just was a different approach. And he went from being the guy that was like the super humble, everybody loves him because he's the chief underdog story to kind of bordering on like a little too full, but we'll see. I mean, maybe, he, maybe that's confidence he needs quite frankly to have a solid year. Um, I thought Ryan Kelly was very open with Kevin and I about some of the emotional struggles that he had and how that impacted his play, which I think has had a ripple effect across the offensive line. And you don't want to hear that as a human being because Ryan Kelly, you know, you don't want any human being to have to go through difficult times but I do think it offers explanation. And if you're a Colts fan, it's an explanation that probably offers some relief because maybe they do, in fact, as a line, have a better year this year, which is going to be important. Um, and I thought DeForest Buckner was really cool with us, as he is every year. I mean, he's a nice guy, uh, obviously a great player. And I think it's encouraging that, you know, a guy that is in his prime and one of the better players in the league at his position is aware of the fact that they may be a few years away but he's in on, at least for now, trying to help Anthony Richardson grow. I, you know, when Kevin asked him, like, what's it going to take this year? And he's like, well, you know, we we got to get this guy ready. I mean, everybody – it was like he knew that everyone knew who he was talking about. He didn't have to say Anthony Richardson or the quarterback. Everyone knows on whose shoulders so much is resting this year. Jay Query, the morning show. Kevin and Query again tomorrow morning up at Grand Park in Westfield for the opening day of Colts practice. Jake with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I don't know what, if anything, Chris Ballard sounded like today regarding Jonathan Taylor. Um, I just think that, and I'll get your opinion, he recognizes his situation and the way this thing is built you know, also took them down this path. It's not even so much because, well, you've got a rookie, very inexperienced quarterback, but the way that the Colts were built also takes them down this path as being different in their approach with their running back than anybody else across the NFL landscape is. Do you think he realizes that? I do. Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, like we've talked about before, I just think the Taylor situation is an interesting one because they're clearly going to need him to take heat off of a rookie quarterback who's having to learn on the job. But then at the same time, once, you know, do you commit beyond this year and commit big money for Jonathan Taylor and then have him start to hit his, his downslide around the time that Richardson's really in his prime and you don't have somebody else ready to plug in you know, there's a there's a balancing act in terms of the the scales there of time periods. But you know, the thing we talked about this morning with Jonathan Taylor, and I'm sure, you know, Chris Ballard's well aware of it. Jonathan Taylor absolutely is well aware of this. Is Saquon Barkley didn't do any running backs any favors. I mean, a one year deal for 11 million is. I'm sure Ballard loved that because, you know, if you could re-sign Taylor for a year at 11 million, I think that might even be less than what the tag is at this point. Um, 
and that's around the price of the tag, somewhere in there. And I do think they'll probably franchise tag him for a year. Then after that, you know, we'll see whether or not they, de- they determine if he is good for, and I think probably the number of years on an extension for Taylor would be as much a sticking point as the amount of money. I mean, they've got cap space, but I think it's the number of years that you want to commit to him because while he has been an incredibly productive player, he has that injury. But running backs, as we know, man, when it goes, it goes quick. And 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 they're just so it's such a year to it, it is such a year to year thing. And yeah, totally. I mean, you see, year to year thing. And I think now. If you're him, you have to to hope that you create um, a more of uh, an indisposable type of player production-wise out there because of the situation at quarterback. And, and you know, what what's tough on it is, I mean, there are no guarantees. I mean, you saw it two years ago when you thought, well, this guy, there's no way you could go without this guy. And then last year thinking, well, why do you have to have this guy? I mean, it's incredible the thought process two years ago compared to some of the thought process right now. And unfortunately, all these guys at that position have to live with it. But I will say this, I think Taylor is in a much more – positive situation for himself where he is here than you would be basically anywhere else in the NFL. Oh, I don't think there's any question about that. There would be, you'd be hard pressed to find five teams that are going to be more like running back reliant in the next year or two than the Colts. Right. I mean, that's a, so I totally agree with that aspect of it. And, you know, I mean, I know Richardson's got a cannon of an arm and he could throw it 60 yards right on point. And I, I don't say that flippantly, I'm being serious, but that doesn't do you any good if you can't hit a five-yard crossing route, which is the issue apparently through camp, at least from what I've heard, or, or you know, OTAs. Um, but they got to get them weapons, too. they got to get them downfield weapons in time. And until then, yes, the running back position is critically important to them to keep a defense honest. So, Jake Cray's with us. I do want to shift gears. So you have All-Star Saturday, and that was a big deal made yesterday. You know, tickets only for uh, people from Indiana that went on sale at 2. And then you had uh, more than just a handful of people upset about how things went down, didn't get what they were looking for. Uh, and it seems like it was with all of the best intentions here with the folks in Indy and the NBA, 24 49 and $79 each were the tickets in the 600 level. And now those tickets, similar to, are uh, from 297 to $305. Who's most at fault if you want to blame somebody for what took place yesterday? Yeah, we talked about it this morning, John. I, I don't. Here's the thing it'd be easy for me to sit here and say, you know, what a terrible system, terrible setup, whatever. But what's the answer? I mean, I don't know what. I said this morning, they should just do it old school. Go to your local Ticketmaster location, and I want to see people camped out in front of Karma Records and J.C. Penny. What the hell? What the? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. let's just do it right. Let's go old school here. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. But, yep. But you know, I I do think that as I understand it, people that waited in the queue and people that got in early were not aware until they got in there that it was only the 600 level tickets that were available. If that's the case, that's disappointing for certain. And, and I agreed with what Kevin said this morning, having eight as the limit is probably a little high. It probably should be a limit of four, right? So that you just, you don't have people, obviously when it's eight, people are doing it for resale purposes, I'd imagine. Um, And I get it. I mean, listen, if, if people were able to get in and get them and they want to turn around and sell them, I mean, more power to them. Right. But, I don't know, and I'm not trying to cop out of the answer, but I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is because I think no matter what, there are going to be people that are left out in the cold and unhappy, and that sucks, but that's the way it is. Now, having said that, I, 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 I get why it would be super cool to go and say you were there, but in the ticketless era where you don't have ticket stubs to be able to like put it in a frame, and, and you know, I was just going through some stuff here at home, and I found – a ticket stub that I had from my uncle gave it to me, but from the 1984 Olympic games, I'm like, it's pretty cool. Right. To be able to say, I have a ticket stub from the Olympic games. Other than being able to say that you were there and have a ticket stub, which isn't even applicable now, is it really worth 200 or $300 to sit in the upper level of Lucas oil stadium at a court where three guys, two of which are probably in the G league are doing the dunk contest. I mean, I think it'd be more fun to just go downtown and find some cool bar and hang out there or go right outside the field house with the new plaza they have there and watch it there, right? 
Uh, many people end up doing that, no doubt about it. Uh, Jake Query is with us. All right. This date, also in 1980. Very famous because Back in Black, released by ACDC. Is that the greatest ACD, ACDC album of all time? Ooh. What, what was Thunderstruck? I'm assuming on? you've heard it, right? I better ask if you've heard it first after the whole Caddyshack ordeal. I've have you heard, have you heard Back through, in Black? I've heard it. <laughs> uh, there's no uh, way you're from the gonna... state of Indiana without hearing that all the way through over and over again. No way. You know, my, my favorite ACDC album and this is also a total cop-out, ACDC Live was, I loved it. And with Thunderstruck, and I mean, my favorite ACDC song is, what album is Money Talks on? Uh, Money Talks? Yes, what album? Is that I, think album? I think it's Money Talks, right? And that's my favorite look, album. Look that up, James. I think it's Money Talks is Money Talks, title track. I, I love that song. Love it. Um, what's the one that has the bagpipes in it? Oh, is that uh, high voltage? Maybe. What's that? Uh, is a high voltage? The bagpipes yeah, are like seventy six. Rock and roll. What's the name of it? It's a long way from the top. Yeah, I thought that was seventy six. And high voltage. I thought that was the album. That that was that's a great song. So whatever album that's on too. But I, you know, listen, I'm. I think for sure, Back in Black is their signature album, though. I mean, yes, that's clearly their best album. It's the one that, that has the songs that most people would immediately identify with them. Okay. Maybe it was TNT that I was thinking of, but I thought it was high voltage. Anyway, um, here's one. You'll find this funny. There's one. Um, I'm trying to think which one it was right here. I mean, obviously, Highway to Hell. Highway to Hell is a big one. Um, for those about The Rock, another big one right there. I mean, even the Razors, I mean, the Razors worried. Edge in 1990, that was a big deal. See, but, Razors uh, Edge, I, Razors Edge is awfully strong, man. That's yeah. awfully good. But I, I, I was literally, I mean, I'll be 51 in September. Yeah, I was literally like probably 42 years old before I realized that ACDC is Australian. I don't know why. I just always assumed they were from London. I was stunned when I found out they're Australian. Nah, it's it's great stuff, and uh, I know everybody kind of takes Back in Black um, at times for granted because if you're a Bon Scott fan, then you're going to take something from the Bon Scott era over the Brian Johnson era. That's how it normally works. Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's funny how music changes, though, because when I was a kid and ACDC was out, that was like super hardcore, like yes. metal rock, you know? Right. And like now it's just like, you know, it's just cool classic rock, right? Um same with Motley Crue. I mean, I remember thinking Motley Crue was like, I, I think Motley Crue gave me nightmares when I was like nine. And then I look at it now, I'm like, are you kidding me? I, was, I mean, <laughs> you know, like those dudes, Kiss was the same way. I remember the, the Kiss, my sister had the Kiss Alive 2 album in like 1977. That thing gave me, just looking at it, I was four and a half years old. Gene Simmons gave me nightmares, right? And then lo and behold, next thing I know, the only nightmares I'm having about Gene Simmons is him singing about rocket guys at IndyCar races or some stuff, you know? I remember the the cover. I think it was the live album, If You Want Blood, You've Got It, from ACDC. And <laughs> Angus Young is being impaled by his guitar. That scared the crap out of me when I was little. That I, album cover. I hear you, man. Yeah. I hear you. This guy's you know? getting impaled right here by his guitar. So you're thinking, wow, what's going on right here? Must be yeah. evil. So, man, those were the days, though, weren't they? Like you go to, you know, I remember going to Castleton and going to Camelot Records or you know, Karma for that matter, saving up my two bucks from allowance every two weeks and going and buying a forty-five and like the just the decision of what record I was going to buy that week and looking at the album covers. Man, those are good times, man. It's too bad kids can't do it anymore. Yeah. Good times. That and album art, album art. In whatever fashion it was, was certainly a big deal that we will uh, never, ever see again. So how many times are you guys up at camp this week for the rest hey, of whenever uh, they're there? Th- this week, we're there again tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, then not there on Thursday and then Friday with the Dairy Bar to kick off the Indiana State Fair. So all told over the course of camp, I believe we we're doing eight broadcasts from there. Two of them will be this week. Um, if if you were um, if you had to choose between white milk and chocolate milk, would you pick chocolate every time? And did you think if somebody picks white milk, there's something wrong with them? Yes, to both. I would agree. 
Chocolate milk, by the way, according to the American Dairy Association of Indiana, John, thank you for mentioning that, yes. by the way. Uh, the same potassium as a banana, the same amount of vitamin A as uh, like three cups of spinach, and the same amount of protein as two hard-boiled eggs. Your excellent refueling beverage, chocolate milk. I remember when Clay Thompson years ago had that commercial about it, and then he went right out and got hurt, like twice. <laughs> <laughs> they were not keen on that, right? How about the odds that? How about the fact that Joseph Newgarden loves milk, and so a couple of years ago, the Dairy Association set him up by taking a tour of a dairy farm, and so he toured this dairy farm, and then it turned out that the and this is like four years ago, and the dairy farmer Carrie Estes, the dairy farmer that hosted Joseph Newgarden on a tour, was actually the dairy farmer this year that was in charge of handing the bottle of milk to the winner. So Newgarden grabbed the bottle of milk, turned around, and was like, oh, man, I toured your dairy farm. That's pretty cool. That's cool as hell right there. Hey, um, would you, if if you had to choose, where would Iowa rank as a state in which you would live? Uh, Higher than you would think. I've been to all 50 states. One of these days I'm going to do a blog and rank them 1 to 50. Um, Higher than you think. I think eastern Iowa is beautiful. I think Des Moines, we stayed in downtown Des Moines. Tons of cool restaurants in Des Moines, very quaint, probably more like the size of a Fort Wayne, but totally clean. And then made right loose meat sandwiches are so darn good that and only available in Iowa, uh, a, a, in one place in Ohio. But so that's uh, just like a sloppy Joe without the tomato sauce, loose meat. Correct. So instead of tomato sauce, it has like kind of a um, like a meat juice and right. then basically melted cheese i mean they are unbelievable uh but i I, i'll be honest with you man i i really like iowa i think iowa city's a cool city i think des moines is underrated and it's quaint it's clean and it's friendly and it's and people are pretty educated there is a film from the late 1990s um and i can't really think right now who was well snoop snoop dog was in it and some rappers were in it it was called white boys and it takes place in Iowa. And if you've never seen that, it is so ridiculously awful, it makes it really good. So you got to check it out. Called White Boys. Well, 1998 or 99, something like that. I thought you were going to go with Field of Dreams in Dyersville, Iowa, and then I was going to have to break it to you that <laughs> this conversation is going to end like it started. I've never actually seen it all the way through. Yeah, I have seen that all the way through, too. That's that's pretty good, too. And our, our friend uh, Drew Storen. You know, got Field of Dreams going with the corn from the Field of Dreams up in Iowa. Man, he's got that thing pumping right now, too. Good for him. That is cool, for sure. You know? So, Field of Dreams in Iowa and White Boys in Iowa. And one uh, Radar O'Reilly was, I believe, fictitiously from uh, Ottumwa, Iowa, right? So, too, too, by the way, Captain Kirk... Captain Kirk in Star Trek mentions in one episode being from Iowa and the town of Riverside, Iowa, uh, wrote to and got permission from the screenwriters or whatever to claim that as his future birthplace. And they have a house that is the future birthplace of Captain Kirk in Riverside, Iowa, and the whole town is decked out in Star Trek stuff. No, that's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. 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 I think there's also a film called Cedar Rapids that uh, is built around Iowa, I believe, too. That sounds familiar, actually. Now, John C. Riley's in it. They're insurance agents. So I've John, seen, John I've, C. Riley and Ed, Ed Helm, I think, that. is in that too. That's going to shock everybody because that's not like back in the eighties. But yeah, what, what about Roseanne? Took place in Illinois, right? It did. It did. But yeah. you know, she was obviously. I think was she from Iowa? And I know Tom Arnold, Arnold was from uh, Iowa. So yeah, I think it's Tom Arnold from Iowa. They, they yeah, got yeah. that the whole loose meat sandwich idea out of that. Ashton Kutcher's from Iowa. He right? is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I saw Dallas Clark. I did see Dallas Clark at the uh, IndyCar race, and he looked like he could start for the Colts tomorrow. You think Dallas Clark's in better shape now than he was when he was an NFL player? I think, honestly, he looked certainly, like, just emotionally, he looked better than he did at the end of his playing career. Was super cool, super friendly. You know, he's, he's tight with Tony Kanaan, so he was there for that. And, yes, he looked like, you know, he's farming and living, kind of living the free life in Iowa and looked like he absolutely could start tomorrow. He said, he told me flat out, he goes, I can do a two-minute drill, and that's it. I said, okay, that's cool. That's about all they need you for, so that's cool. Well, let me tell you this. When you look back at the Manning era with Dallas Clark, oftentimes you don't bring him up on level of importance, but he was right there in the category of the most important weapons Peyton Manning ever Uh had right there. Absolutely. Sometimes he gets lost in the shuffle because of the other talent. 
and Manning, you know, he, he listen, Dallas Clark, in terms of his ability, his bravery to go across the middle and make catches, I mean, he got lit up sometimes um, and was, you know, paid the price for sure at times of being, but, but Manning trusted him and, and there's good reason for it because if he caught it, he was able to turn and, and slanted upfield, man. He had good, he had deceptive speed for sure. I, I know you were aware of this, but um, somebody you know really well and a, a longtime friend of mine, Ron Sexton, passed away um, uh, on on Friday, in fact. And I had uh, Jason Hofset, so you know, who still works for the Bob and Tom Show uh, over where you also used to work off of Fall Creek Road. I'd ask him if I could get some of those those old Ron Sexton made up press conferences that he did for the Bob and Tom show, you know, back in the middle 2000s. And Jason's been giving me those. And uh, in fact, Tom Griswold gave me uh, his blessing, uh, if credited, to play them here, uh, which I thought was really cool of him. But I was listening to a couple of them. And and Ron Sexton doing Jim Irsay is still one of the greatest things of all time around here. Oh, I mean, it, it's so incredible. He had he had those two. I mean, he had the banners yes. nailed too. Yes. Right? Oh my gosh. Well, thank um, you, David. Sorensen for certain. <laughs> um, you know, Ron. John, let me let me say this. Yep. Um, I, I did not know Ron Sexton well. You know, matter of fact, I, I really it would be disingenuous for me to say that I knew him. Although, I because I worked in the same building as Bob and Tom, I did cross. You know hallway pass with him on a handful of occasions and he was always super cool and I think we kind of felt like we knew each other just because our you know our ages and and so many mutual people that we knew but uh really quite frankly John the 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 connection between Ron Sexton and myself probably was you in the Kevin Bacon game and so you were probably the, the focal point of conversation in the few times that I that I talked to Ron and I know, and I hope our listeners know and, and recognize the professionalism from your standpoint of being able to tribute him or talk about him when, you know, the reality is he was one of your closest, certainly professional friends, and I think personal as well. And, and I know you two were tight for a very long time. I think you defined friendship with him and vice versa because I never heard either one of you say a crossword about the other. And you had a, a, a very strong mutual admiration and respect amongst one another that was exuded in his discussions about you or of you when, when your name would come up when I would talk to him. And the few times that I did talk to him, it was always the focal point. So he was a massive talent um, by all account from what I know he had to have been a good guy because if he was buddies with you, that then he had to have been a good guy. So it's a huge loss for Indianapolis, and it's a huge loss for a lot of people that I think in their dark times he was able to lighten it with the humor that he brought to it. So he will be missed for a long time. Yeah, he – um, and I was trying to explain this yesterday as best I could. He was so much more – I mean, certainly Donnie Baker was his, his character calling card on so many different levels, but he did – so many more funny things, you know, whether it was a part of Bob and Tom or on where we both used to work at, at WNDE doing stuff there, working with Mark Patrick in the morning on that national morning show on Fox or you know, going back and doing sports at My Indy TV or TV 23. And he did it at Wish with Mark then. Um, and I, I, they also seem to forget he spent like seven or so years as a high school baseball coach in Florida where they won upwards of like 140 games. I mean, he was so talented on every single level. And uh, it's, yeah, it's tough to come to grips with something like that. I know it's tough for a lot of people. What was the other job that he had, John? He worked with the Colts. He worked with the yeah, Colts. There you go. Yeah. That's right. Jim Mercy yeah. mentioned that he worked for the Colts for yeah. years. Did he work in their broadcast division? Yeah, he was a part of it. Um, uh, I, I know one time I told a story, he got massively in trouble with Bill Polian because Mark, Mark Patrick walked down what was called a forbidden hallway over there uh, back in the early 2000s and to talk to Kevin Spencer, the uh, special teams coordinator. And uh, Bill Polian saw them and the next day called Ron into his office along with Dan Emerson, uh, their their counsel, 
and just absolutely read him the riot act. I mean, in, in, in typical Bill Polian fashion. So it uh, there are a lot of stories that happened over there uh, with him. But, uh, you know, they all, you know, you all reflect upon those stories as as being cool now because uh, obviously his loss and, and the hole that that puts in, in a lot of of what we do, how we laugh, uh, how we enjoy things, and certainly as, as a friend will be incredibly missed. But he, he did a lot of people, things. John? In the in the end, I mean, I think he, he did it for so long and mm-hmm. did it so well. What percent of people do you, do you think thought Donnie Baker was so real? Uh, I probably I would maybe over fifty percent. Is that fair? At least <laughs> <laughs> probably. I, I just I, I think that you know he 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 had it so pegged. We all knew. Like I grew up with probably I probably graduated with. If they graduated, like twenty-five Donnie Bakers. No, I mean, I mean we all sure. hung out. We all had Donnie Bakers in our life. I mean, he he nailed that character to a point where it it was so relatable to nearly everybody. Yeah, and man, that's that's tough to do. That's tough to do and, and in that I world think, of characters. I, I think one of the things that would be a challenge was, and I, I, I don't know this, and I certainly don't want to speak. For Ron, if it, especially that he can't elaborate, unfortunately. But I, I think there had to have been times, John, where it was a challenge for Ron Sexton because he would go and do Donnie Baker, and then after the show, people were wanting him to continue to be Donnie Baker, and like they're you know part of their experience of going and seeing him in a club was like, man, I did shots with Donnie Baker, I hung out with Donnie Baker, you know, I mean, because it, it's it's just nonstop fun, right? Yeah. I mean, that character was so great. But it had to be tough to to just lead that that life of like, look, man, I'm I'm still Ron. You know what I mean? Like it had to be challenging. Yeah, incredible, no doubt about that, and uh, a tremendous loss. All right, you can back up there coming up tomorrow, beginning at seven a.m. at Grand Park for the first day of practice. Correct? That is correct. We are back there tomorrow for practice. We'll have a couple more players on Got site. It. I would anticipate, and then um, as a matter of fact, I think the new. Uh, the the new the big free agent signing of yeah. the summer the new Matt kid Gay. for the Colts is going to join yeah. us is going to join us tomorrow and then I think Dwight Freeney is going to join us on Thursday nice we're in studio Thursday nice yep. man all right I appreciate you Jake thanks man all right always a pleasure John we'll see you Bobby Nightingale Jr. joins us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline how's this Tuesday late afternoon going for you Bobby. Doing well. It's supposed to get to a uh, hundred degrees in Minneapolis over the next few days. So it's kind of the last day of not not dying of uh, what, dehydration uh, or anything. Uh, wait, wait, how often does it get to? I don't normally think about triple digits in temperatures and think about Minneapolis. You know, is this the warmest it's been up there in forever? Yeah, I saw something. It's like it'll be like the seventh hottest days in you know the, since the turn of the century or something. Yeah, that can't be good. <laughs> I'm assuming everybody has AC up there, right? Like it's funny in Seattle. Sometimes when they have really hot days, not everybody out there has has working air conditioning because they don't necessarily need it for most of the year. So those that don't have AC probably would be struggling with temperatures like that. Yeah, it'll, it'll definitely be a the ACs will get a more workout than they've ever gotten. So hey, I, I know that you target a lot in the a, in the AL Central certainly, and, and with the Twins and the White Sox and others in mind. G- give me the the active points you think that the teams in which you cover uh, may have interest in parting with, especially pitching arms, because we're around both you know Cincinnati and Chicago here, and and certainly people believe that Nick Crawl and the Reds are thinking about doing something here, moving toward the the trade deadline. Within the teams that you cover, who might the Reds pitching wise have interest in? Yeah, I mean, I would think for sure Chicago. I mean, the White Sox are—they're going to have to do a teardown. I mean, they just—they just got swept in Minnesota, so um, you know, and they have some arms. Lance Lynn has a bad ERA, but he strikes out a ton of guys. Lucas Giolito's obviously a big name that'll be—I I think they'll make him available. Dylan Cease, if the Reds want to part with some top prospects, I, I think he could be had. I mean, I think that's at least a, a conversation they'd entertain. Um, and, and then there's like Michael Kopech—he's got an injury history, but he's got a few extra years of control. So I think Reds and White Sox, that's that's one to watch for sure. 
Uh, Royals don't have many starters, but they have relievers if that uh, – if the, if the Reds want to go that direction. I, I mean, listening to Carl's comments, I mean, I covered the Reds for five years. You know, they're in a different position, but he, he talks about financial flexibility. They obviously have a ton of prospects that they can deal. I mean, they're they're in an envious position. Um, this kind of depends on how far they, they want to go. I mean, they saw last year kind of what they got for Luis Castillo and Tyler Malley, so they know the prices. Um, but maybe it's one of those things where they're in a good spot where – you're in second place in your division. You have a chance to make the playoffs. And you're probably one year ahead of schedule. And, uh, you know, you have more money than you thought you would. How are there the people in the Twin Cities thinking about that deal for Maui and what they gave up in hindsight? Yeah, I mean, it's already turned into one of the worst in team history, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously it depends on how good Spencer Steer and Christian Encarnacion Strand turn out. But you're talking about nine starts of Tyler Maui for six seasons of Spencer Steer and six seasons of Christian Encarnacion Strand. I mean, if Steer continues on this pace, I don't know if he'll be an all-star level player, but I think he'll be pretty close. And Encarnacion Strand, I mean, anybody would want him in their lineup the way he is. It's uh, Bobby Nightingale Jr., MLB coverer with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Here's my thought is with the Reds, like it's enjoyable what they're doing. I mean, even with the disappointment of last night, it's enjoyable to watch what they're doing. But at the same time, you, you want to make sure if you give up some of what you have that is coveted within your organization as a prospect, that you get something that's just not here for, as you mentioned, you know, a handful of starts and then gone. You cannot have that happen. Absolutely. But I think one thing, I mean, that's, I think that Carl doesn't get enough credit for. I mean, he's hit on basically every trade they've made. I mean, when you look at trading Jesse Winker and Eugenio Suarez for the prospects, you know, Brandon Williamson and, um, Connor Phillips, a starter at AAA, who has the most strikeouts in the minor leagues. Uh, and, you know, almost every player they've got, they developed really well. Um, you know, that, that's not normal. I mean, it's not normal to have that type of success rate on your trade. Not typical to have all those prospects kind of look the way they are. I mean, Ellie De La Cruz, Matt McClain, and Christian Carnos and Strand all in the majors at the same time. That's really rare. Um, so, I mean, I, I mean, odds eventually are, you know, you're going to have some prospects that are going to be pretty well hyped and don't pan out and um, you know, that, I think that's the biggest part of where the Reds are is again, how well can they evaluate their own prospects and, uh, you know, try to limit the type of Tyler Malley trades. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny, too. We live in a world where there are so many absolutes out there. And, hey, you know, right now you're a game and a half back. You're in the thick of things in the central. You've had very little, if uh, none at all, success most of the time over uh, recent history. So why not go for it? Right now, I mean, you got to be really careful not to do that because, again, as exciting as this is, sometimes it looks like it is is put together with with smoke and mirrors. Like you do get some good fortune with this group, you just don't know the sustainability of it. It's fun to watch, but you can't. I don't think you can get over your skis in this case, as far as what you're trying to do with this team that that is exciting right now. But honestly, Bobby, it may not be exactly ready for prime time if you know what i mean yeah and i think you're right about that i mean i think you look at who their pitchers are i mean i think they're vastly exceeding expectations with uh you know if you would have told me when i was covering them at the beginning of the season that hunter green would be hurt nick lodolo would be hurt and graham ashcraft would be having a so-and-so season you know i would have thought for sure you know they were kind of destined to lose 100 games if that was the case uh, so you know you have to give credit to the pitchers who have stepped up um, but also kind of keep that in the back of your mind and saying, okay, if you would trade for one pitcher and Andrew Abbott's about to throw more innings than he's ever thrown in his career and Brandon Williamson, I'm assuming it'll, you know, be pretty close to doing the same thing. Um, you know, how are, how are they going to look in September? And can one starter that you trade for make up for that? Um, so I think you're right. I mean, I think, I think there's, it, it's a, it's more complicated than just saying, you know, you're, in second place, you're close to a wild card spot too, uh, and just going for it. Well, I was one person that I was a non-believer in Nick Kroll, and um, and and certainly with me and others, he's had a little bit of payback here. With all right, you see, I do know what I'm doing here, and you can see it now in the results, which I don't think, as you mentioned, I thought this was going to be a massively losing team this year, and honestly, it's been one of the uh, more fun to watch in recent memory as far as the Reds are concerned. Bobby Nightingale Jr., he does join us. What are some other names within the AL, teams you cover, and then outside of the AL, or just names in MLB in general you think could ultimately be on the move prior to the trade deadline, Bobby? Yeah, I think the big one to watch is Marcus Stroman uh, from the Cubs. He's, the Cubs didn't want to give him a contract extension. He, he kind of made it known that he was willing to do it, um, and there haven't been talks there. So, I mean, it makes sense if 
the Cubs are going to sell. I mean, he's, he could opt out of his contract at the end of the year, automatically becomes one of the better starting pitchers on the trade market. And then I think you look at kind of San Diego. Uh, they have a losing record. They spent all this payroll trying to go for it this year, trying to catch the Dodgers, and it's been a disappointing year. Doesn't sound like they fully committed to selling yet, but Blake Snell and Josh Hader are both free agents at the end of the year. I mean, those are two game-changing arms that they are made available. I, I think they're, those, the Padres and kind of the Mets, too, are kind of two teams disappointing, and they're going to kind of use the next five days to determine whether they're going to be sellers or whether they're just going to stand pad and uh, go forward with what they have. And I know you do a lot of work within the AL Central and certainly cover that of the, the Twins with a four-game advantage in the AL Central right now. Um, how do you view them as far as the landscape of the better teams in the American League right now? Where do you where do you slot the Twins, the team that you cover for the most part? Yeah, I mean, they had the pitching to match with anybody. I mean, Sonny Gray's been really good at the top of the rotation. Uh, but the hitting, they've been underperforming. And that's kind of it's, – it's kind of weird. I mean, Carlos Correa is having the worst offensive season of his career. Byron Buxton's hitting 195. Uh, Joey Gallo's been up and down. So, I mean, they have big names. They have guys that can carry a team for weeks at a time. Uh, they just haven't performed to, you know, kind of their expectations. Uh, they have the best record since the All-Star break, so that's kind of eased some tension around here. Uh, but I, I think – I wouldn't put them on the same level as maybe the Orioles or the uh, Tampa Bay Rays or Houston Astros, Texas Rangers, but I think they're right behind that tier. And with their pitching, I think they could match up if the hitters, you know, come alive in the second half. Yeah, and they're one of those teams. I guess everybody's going to start with the Orioles. I think with good reason as the biggest, most enjoyable surprises. But you know, the team you cover, the team that we talk about around here a great deal, and being the Reds, they're all kind of right up there in that that top three, I guess, of most exciting surprises. Which honestly, you know what, Bobby, it's necessary. I mean, it's it's not bad, and I know I sound like a small market guy when I state this, but when you look at you know where the Yankees are uh, can, compared to where Baltimore is right now, uh, for most it has to be refreshing. I know not for Yankee fans, but for most baseball fans, it has to be refreshing, and it gives folks gives folks a reason to really pay attention. I think more so than you have with your favorite team being down each and every year and kind of being a laughing stock. You get more in tune, um, more engaged in in baseball in situations like in Baltimore and what we see in Cincinnati, and I'm assuming even in in Minneapolis where you are right now with the Twins. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see in attendance. I mean, the, the Reds are selling out game after game right now. When when the season yeah. started, I mean, they had their lowest attendance in Great American Ballpark history uh, for one of those games. I think it was like a seven thousand person crowd. So, I mean, fans will turn out, tune in if they're a winner. And I, I think the most exciting thing, when, especially when you talk about the Orioles and the Reds uh, and the Diamondbacks too, is just how much young talent they have. Uh, you know, that's that's kind of the one equalizer. I mean, the Yankees are always going to be able to spend more than small market teams. The Dodgers, same thing. Um, but if you can get exciting young talent, they're under team control for six seasons, uh, and you can maximize that. I mean, Ellie De La Cruz, who knows if he'll you know, be in Cincinnati long-term when he becomes a free agent, uh, but he's there for the next six years. I mean, that's huge for Cincinnati. I mean, he's already uh, – I think he already rivals Joe Burrow in terms of popularity. I mean, Patrick Mahomes asked for his autograph. So, I mean, I, I think that tells you everything in terms of if, if you get young talent, uh, you know, that gets fans excited, definitely. That's a no doubt about that. All right, what you're writing about here uh, regarding the team you cover and, and certainly AL Central, AL, and baseball in general, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, right now it's just trade deadline stuff. Um, you know, the Twins are looking to be buyers, Reds too. Um, and so trying to monitor that over the next week. Uh, August 1st is the trade deadline, the next Tuesday. So uh, a lot of rumors to follow, a lot of things to watch over the next week. It's weird. I find myself in a weird spot. I'd love to see because it's necessary pitching-wise. I'd love to see the Reds do something. But I, I do want them to tread lightly on it because as enjoyable as this has been, it, it, it seems like that it, it could it could go away rather quickly at times. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think it'll be interesting to compare it to the Orioles. The Orioles were kind of in a similar spot yeah. last year, and they chose to sell. Uh, they traded their closer. Uh, and, and a couple other guys, they didn't really add to it, ended up falling short in the second half. And obviously they've had a breakout season this year. But, uh, you know, I think it's kind of the same dynamics. You have a young core. How far do you go with if you like? Oh, maybe it, it maybe it not it may not be real, maybe, but um, you know how, how aggressive do you be? Yeah, no doubt about that. Bobby Nightingale, you can find him on Twitter. Is that uh, Nightingale Junior? Will we find you on Twitter? 
Yeah, it is. Yep. Uh, a fantastic Bradley University alumnus, by the way. And uh, I'm from Indiana State, so that makes us uh, a get-together of Missouri Valley Conference friends right here talking baseball, which is always good. Bobby, I appreciate you more than you know, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, Bobby Nightingale Jr. on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Highline. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff working right there. On the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline right now, Greg Rakestraw joins us. You going to slide by the Broad Ripple location tomorrow of Union Jack? How in the world are you going to be at my bar when I am on the way to Memphis, Tennessee? How does that work out? I don't know how that works. Hopefully I'm right. And I am. I am <laughs> I, I am fortunate enough that I get to do a few gigs for USA basketball coming up in the next week or so. Nice. So I am I am I am after training camp tomorrow, I am heading down to Memphis and I get to call the uh US Open Championships, which is basically the fifteen U and sixteen U national championships from the Memphis Sports and Events Center by the old Mid South Coliseum on Thursday morning. So I'm sorry I will not be there in person with you on Wednesday. Oh, I can't wait. That's been a while since I've been to the Union Jack. Have you been to the new Union Jack? I have not. I have okay, not. So yeah. Make sure you go to where the old Union Jack is and then look across the street. That's where you're supposed to be. That's uh, tomorrow, Union Jack in Broad Ripple. Cannot wait for that to be there with the Indy 11. Greg Raystraw is kind enough to join us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So I saw a Big Ten preseason poll. There are a lot of them out there. Going to be even more, I'm sure, that has in the East, IU 7th, and in the West, Purdue 6th. Do you buy both of those thoughts early on in this process of college football? You know, IU sounds are about right. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're, you're kind of fighting for fifth, sixth, or seventh uh, in the current combination where the division's kind of split up uh, in, in the Big Ten going forward. And as far as Purdue is concerned, you know, I had a chance to talk to Pete Quinn about the Boilermakers yesterday, and they are going to be a team that is going to be very transfer-reliant. And so if you're going off of familiarity from last year's Purdue team that was solid, if not spectacular, well, most of the pieces that you would know other than, say, a Devin Maccabee are gone. So I'm not surprised that they are, you know, picked to finish sixth in the West. I would probably lean towards Purdue. will likely end up a couple of spots higher. I think Indiana may, may end up a couple of spots higher as well. But I'm not sure that couple of spots higher for IU will, will make much difference in terms of, you know, the ultimate litmus test for the program these days. Are you going to a bowl game or not? He's Greg Rakestraw with us, shifting gears to the NFL. We saw Saquon Barkley decide to go ahead and take a one-year contract. And as I brought you back in with the Steve Miller Band, take the money and run, despite having conversations and Zoom meetings with other disgruntled running backs about where they are right now financially and what the future holds financially. He did take the money and run. I think these guys, for the most part, are going to have to try to do that because I don't think yep. now is the time to try to figure out exactly where your leverage is, Considering you have none. I realize that, that it, this was like five years ago at this point, but the ultimate example of how not to handle this is Le'Veon Bell. And what did Le'Veon do? Sit out and missed an entire year. And what did Le'Veon do when he came back to the National Football League? Jack squat. Um, I, I understand the plight that running backs are in. I do. I feel their pain. But your best bet is to take as much money for a year or get as much money in a guaranteed two- or three-year package as you can. Um, I'm a little surprised that Saquon didn't get a second year involved in there, but that may be him. He may be betting on himself and thinking, you know what, I'll take a one-year deal and incentives can bump up $13 million, and maybe I'll go get a deal someplace else or a, or a higher-ticket deal from the Giants going forward. But it's just the reality of the position. Uh, it's still an important position. It is not going to be as valued or paid in relative to other positions as it once was. I guess ultimately what you have to do is try to make yourself as irreplaceable as possible, which has not been the case at that position. But producing might do it. Producing around here, especially with a young, very inexperienced quarterback, and not talking about winning a division or going to the postseason or anything like that, but to get this quarterback, Anthony Richardson, on course, that's why I've said all along, I think Jonathan Taylor in this situation is much different than what you see in the landscape of running backs around the NFL because of what is expected from a young, inexperienced quarterback and the production he needs on a team that if you're going to look at offensive production, Greg, at the top of that list, 
on this offense would be Jonathan Taylor. So to me, it's different. You have a five-year winner to pay a running back here. Uh, and then if Richardson plays the way that people hope he plays, that window to pay a running back is gone. Um, for as good as Jonathan Taylor has been for three years, he's not getting a five-year contract. I'm not sure he's getting a four-year contract. But I do believe he would get more money here than he would get anywhere else in the National Football League. So I, I, I think the importance of the Barkley deal isn't as much about years because I do think the Colts will have a little more leniency and be willing to give JT a, a, a two- or three-year deal. I really believe that. But I think what it is is it sets the market value. He took $11 million and I think there's $2 million in bonuses that are attached to it. And so if that's the market for Barkley at about $13 million, I would assume that Jonathan Taylor's number would be of a similar ilk uh, we'll, we'll see if I'm right or wrong on that. He's Greg Graystraw on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. How did you view the news of Shaquille Leonard? Was it like me, and it was twofold? It was, well, at least he's not starting on Pup, and it sounds better than Chris Ballard telling me that I wouldn't bet against him back in February when asked something similar. <laughs> what about you? The fact that he's not starting on Pup, that is a win. The fact that we will see him to some degree, that that is 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 a victory. So, because, again, my expectations on that front were next to nothing, where I have no idea how this is going to play out. So the fact that it's something better than that, that's a win for the Indianapolis Colts today. Yeah, I thought the same thing. I, I mean, it, and again, it's not like this is one of these uh, super terrific wins. It's just something that's better than the alternative uh, in this particular case. Um, Chris Ballard met with the media a little bit earlier around noon. Were you up there today? I was not up there today. I'll be up there tomorrow because as important as Chris's press conference is for me, it's about seeing players on the field. That's the most important. There's place. no doubt about that. So today you just hear a lot of, a lot of conversation and such. Well, what do you think they are um, relative to Anthony Richardson and playing him, for example, in week one compared to where they believe he is right now? Because there's not a great deal to go on, but honestly – if Jim Mercer, the owner, wants to see him play in week number one, which has been, to me, clear, I mean, aren't you siding on that? Doesn't it have to be really disastrous if he's not ready in this case? I would say this. I, I have always held firm that that decision gets made the week of August 21st. In other words, you'll have a preseason game, and I don't know if the Colts will kind of follow it as become the standard operating procedure where if you're going to have these two days of practices against the team, then you don't play your ones in the following preseason game. That's not how I would handle Anthony Richardson. We'll see if Shane Steichen and, and Chris Ballard you know, feel differently uh, about that. But to me, you need to see him for, for four weeks in camp. You need to see him in comparison to Minshew. You need to see him against the Bills and against the Eagles and against the Bears as much as possible and then you make an intelligent decision. And again, this is I, I've likened it to, you know, in, in baseball, a tie goes to the runner. Well, the tie goes to the number four pick in the draft. If they think he would be competent at quarterback, it's going to be him so he can learn. It is his job to lose to me, but at the same time, I honestly don't think a determination has been made because you have to see him in as close to as live fire as you will get. And that will be against your own team for a couple of weeks and then against whatever you're going to see from the Bills in the preseason. And I think most importantly, what you see in practice against the Bears and the Eagles and that last practice is August 22nd. And at that point, you're two and a half weeks out from the start of the season. And then you will have a, a really a chance to know, hey, is the kid close to ready? If he is, it's his job. Then if not, you almost have to protect him from himself and put Minshew out there in week number one. So Greg Rakestraw with us in here yesterday, on the road today, before I let you go. This is a hell of a day in cinematic history right here. And there are few films that you can watch over and over and over again. And they don't, they don't get old. They never get old. And one of those celebrates an anniversary today. That would be Caddyshack. It never gets old. It never gets old. There's no part of it where you skip through because it's boring from start to finish. It is a cinematic masterpiece. 
You agree? Are you having Lacey on the show to celebrate that? Today? Well, I was. Um, I've been going back and forth with her right here, Cindy Morgan, the awesome actress Cindy Morgan, who has, by the way, been on the show before. And if you remember, Spalding has been on the show with me before. I don't even know how to track him down now. I think he's. Uh, now, see, it, it, it's funny for some reason. Yep. I remember the fact that Lacey was on the show. Yes, Spalding, not so much. Yes, yeah, Spalding. Uh, yes, I vividly yeah. remember her being on the program. Yes, trying to think. I think it was the uh, the twenty fifth anniversary of the release of Caddyshack and they were doing some type of reunion in Chicago and most of them got together I think even including Bill Murray and both Cindy Morgan called in and then Spalding called in Spalding at the time was a real estate agent in Boston Massachusetts <laughs> Do you mean play, playing a role where 50 bucks says he eats it is it good for one's acting career is what you were trying to tell me <laughs> yeah. But he was awesome though I mean he was we talked about you know the the farts and double farts and turds and you know the boogery and he, I think people forget about how huge of a dynamic he was in that film. You know what I mean? I mean, they were great actors and great comedians, but he was among them, somebody that had very little experience doing that. It was amazing how he popped. He was very much a comic foil in that movie. Absolutely, he was. And uh, Cindy Morgan is Lacey Underall. Always look good. No question. No question Still about looks that. Good. 43 years later. 1980, Caddyshack, this day in cinematic history. Now, Greg Rakestraw via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Potline. Great job on the midday show yesterday, and I'll uh, catch you a little bit further down the road. And sorry about tomorrow on Broad Ripple at Union Jack. That's, that's weird, okay. the timing right there. Have an extra beverage for me, and I'll talk to you next week. You got it, buddy. Thank you very much. Greg Rakestraw, Andy Moore Automotive Group Potline.